Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Norries Podcast. I'm your host, James Anna, joined by my good friend, Timmy Lang. Hi, everyone. Rowan is on the decks, mixing the sound. How you say? How you run? How you run? Um, before we get into it, we announced our live tour today. Yeah. So if you're interested in come seeing us in front of a live audience mm-hmm. with a whole production of lighting and sound behind us, we're in Waterford on yeah. the 14th of January, Dublin on the 8th of January. And we're in, we're in Waterford with Morris and Dan Shannon, mm-hmm. 2GA legends. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in Cork Opera House on the 12th of February with Pat Falvey. Yeah. First man up Everest from our road. Both, both peaks of the air. He, he went up both sides, both left and right side of Everest. He was the first man to accomplish that. And he's been all over the world, Amazonian mm. tribes, African tribes, North Pole, South Pole. And he's a public speaker and an inspiration speaker. He, he, he also has an amazing story as well in terms of, you, you remember yeah, the life, from yeah. the day yeah. and he came through a, a massive ordeal in terms yeah. of his construction business failing yeah. and All right, but we, we leave that, that no, we, we keep leave that we <laughs> 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 need to buy tickets to Timmy around <laughs> but uh, um, we've uh, yeah so look buy the tickets on the website and we see all the so this week James we have, is buying everyone a free drink as well let's just sort of get that out <laughs> glass, of, glass of water but this week uh, TD Thomas Gould is in the Studio, how are you, Thomas? Good, James. To me, um, it's great to have you here. Um, for the people that don't know you, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you're from? And I was like, growing up, okay. Well, uh, I'm Thomas School, I'm a TD for Cock North Central. Uh, I live in Cathedral Road with my wife, Michelle Cotter. Uh, Michelle is from Courtown Drive in Acton Heaney, and uh, our two daughters, Ethan Orla. Um, originally, I came from Chartreel Avenue. A flat above the O'Connell shop in the avenue. Mm. Oh, yeah. So that's where I was born. Uh, my mother, Kitty, got us a soul. Um, a lady, my dad, Tony, uh, the best father a fellow could ever ask for. Mm. I two great sisters with Sharon and Noreen. So at about five, we moved up to Nocturne, the Harvey Road. It was just built. Mm. So we were one of the first people to move up there. That was 47 years ago, 48 mm. years ago, sorry. Um, yeah, and I suppose... That's where we started off. I I think um, I've always been really proud of being from Rattanheeny. Mm. Um, and I probably wore it on my heart and my sleeve about it. Because some people, yeah. well, I'm really proud of where I came from and uh, the, the place and the people, you know. Yeah. And I was just thinking on the way down as I was driving down here tonight, um, my mother got rest was sick a lot. Mm. Not all the time, but she, she died. She died a, a young woman of 50. She had rheumatic fever when she was a child and it had damaged her heart. And what I was thinking about was um, 
I was really lucky. And I know I, li- I watch your podcasts and you talk to different people and mm. some people have tough or situations growing up than others. Mm. Where I was really lucky. I had a great family, I had a great mother and father, I had great sisters, but I had a really great extended family. You know, um, like when my mother would, would be sick, like she would have been in the hospital for months. My dad would have been up there with my Uncle Stevie, the two would stay up in Dublin. And I'd stay at my aunt's, my other Cavanagh's house, because she had five sons. Mm. And then my sisters would stay at my other aunt in Churchill Gardens, mm. uh, Jenny, Jenny Mack, with Linda and Janie and her sons. And like the, my grandmother then lived in number 10. So there was three, my grandmother and my two aunts, all in Churchill Gardens. Mm. So, um, and then like, there was people like, um, like Magella, your own mum. Yeah. Claire, Annette, um, we should say for the people watching yeah. that your father and my grandfather are brothers yeah. and they live only three or four doors away. Three, yeah, three doors away. And like, you see, that's probably something that people who wouldn't come from working class areas mightn't get. That, listen, there are issues and we, we'll talk about them in a minute, yeah. you know, but um, the opposite side of that then is there's great communities, there's yeah. great friendships, there's great families there and... And growing up, I had that. And I, I suppose I listened to your podcast. I was very lucky that way. Mm. You know, that, like, I went to school, I went to monastery primary and secondary, and so did my dad, you know. And, there probably uh, was no school in Akinahini when you were up there. When it started, no. No, mm. when it started. Um, Do you know, when, when the Akinahini was built, the houses going up half road on the left was the first houses, and that's where you were. Yeah. What was, can you remember when everything else was just fields? No, actually. Or there was it built across, up quickly? It was across the road. It was a building site. Calvary Grove. And then once you went beyond that, up by where Arbor Avenue would have been in Kilmore Road, then you would have been in the open fields. Yeah. But like you remember the night guy, the night watchman, and he'd be on there at night. And uh, I remember at the time fellas be looking for a bit of wood to build pigeon lofts and dog sheds. They were the big thing back in the day, weren't they? It's a day, you know, the hobby, isn't it? The pigeons. Yeah. One or two staunch alcohol is still at it, like, but not as popular as it used to be. So you'll be looking for pallets and you'll be looking for bits of wood because, like, one stage I had a pigeon loft, like, every young fella when I grew up would have had a pigeon loft and would have had dogs, you know? No, we always had a dog in the house. And even now, we have a dog at home that Michelle and the girls love Coco. Because that's, we were all, there was always animals around mm-hmm. if it wasn't, if, like I had a lot of friends of mine would have had finches known birds. So that's, yeah. that's the, I suppose that's the thing when you're walking class here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I know loads of people that still have finches and yeah. birds. We had, know, some of them. Yeah. we had a pigeon loft in the shed and we broke a little hole in it. And one day a bird, I hope, no, I don't get fucking arrested for this. <laughs> one day anyway, a bird got dirty, one of the pigeons and myself, we were young now, myself and, myself and Thomas put the pigeon into the sink and we started washing the pigeon, we washed up liquid. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't realise, you know, we were all young and one of our neighbours, Mary, she came over and she took the bird and she brought the bird over home and sat the bird in front of the fire. Yeah, but that, was, but that was in the note to me. Yeah, like, the like, board was perfect. Just to be yeah. coming out the boards, be. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason I hit boards yeah. is because uh, my cousins in Churchy, like it was the oldest with two younger sisters, no brothers. Mm. And the lads in Churchy, everyone had, when every second house would have had a pigeon laugh, you know, mm. and it was kind of the thing to do. And fellas used to raise pigeons. Listen, I probably right. did it for three or four years. Yeah. The hunting is huge as well up in Northwest Cork City, isn't it? Mm. And my buddy, you know, Carl Ross, my best, my best friend, let's say, the best man of his when he was best man of mine 
I never got into the hunting. It never no, appealed me to me. But Carol, another guy I would have known that I would have grown up with. Like, I would have went playing GA every Saturday and Sunday, and they would have went hunting yeah. every Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And I remember one thing going fishing with them, and I kind of, after about three hours, I nearly threw the rod into I the know, river. Yeah. Right? So you'd be like that as well. <laughs> I'm only a yeah. you know. But to be clear, even like we was talking to Carol at the weekend, he still goes out with his dog, he goes out for walks, no, he uh, goes fishing, he'd be driving all over the place. And listen, it, like to be able to go away for a day, you know, uh, know. go fishing, you know, be, have your own thoughts, you know. It's yeah. good for the head. Yeah, I think it's and good for the soul, yeah, James. The only time I enjoyed fishing was when I was a teenager, pretending you're going off fishing, you go out to a bag of cans and you're know, like, you're yeah. not or something like that. I know. That's, you know what, there's a lot of people still do that. Yeah. And we've had a lot of tragedies as well, people going into the river, you know, yeah. Yeah. but it's dangerous as well, we have to say that, yeah. like if you're going fishing and you're drinking, just have to be careful. But I remember my Uncle Ray, he brought me fishing. He was mad for the fishing when he was younger as well. But uh, I never got the fascination. I was fucking sitting on the bank of the river. <laughs> yeah. You might get a bite then for three or four hours. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, and I never got into the hunting either. I'm too much of an animal lover. I, yeah. you know, yeah, I, I respect them that they want to do that. Fair play to them, you know. But it wasn't my thing anyway. Yeah. But anyway, we, we move on, right? We know Nocknahini has a, 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 it gets a lot of flack in the press. But you know, when you were growing up there, when Nakhnehini was new, was it? Did that predate it? Like, can you remember, like, yeah. when that kind of notoriety came in? I'd say the reputation came like when I grew up. The it would have been Grawl Brother and Churchill would have had a reputation, mm. you know. And there was, um, and maybe the Glen. They would have been the three areas, and then Nakhnehini was new. And what happened was, like, it was hundreds of, hundreds of families moved into the area in the space of a couple of years with thousands of children. No school, no shops, no meeting, not even a church. There was nothing up there. You just got, they got thousands of people, threw them all into an estate and walked away. Mm. So what was going to happen? Like, I don't care, even if you're the best teenager mm. in the world, mm. right? Then what happens, I, I suppose, from my memory was the 80s and there was no work. Yeah. And, like, I remember being around Lachnini, Churchill, and Grawl, and a place like that, and half the place wasn't working. Mm. And as I said, I went to the mall, and when I came out in 1986, um, I had a friend of mine, he played with Vincent at the time, Rodney Feeney, he lived in Harvey Road as well. The, like, the Feeney's, the, yeah. the boys would have been, a lot of them would have been GA people now, or hunting people as well. Mm. And uh, me and Rodney talked about going to England. He had a brother over there. And then we got Davy Mack, the councillor Davy Mack. Mm, like, a lot of people wouldn't know him now, but he would have been a local councillor. And he would have been my coach in St. Vincent's. And Davy Mack got us jobs down in a place called Han Hanny Mack's in Little Island. Myself and Rodney, Barry Coote and a few more. Because the, um, I suppose the power of the GA, right? There was a man down there at the time from Bishopstown, Michael English. And he was the, he was the, the human resource manager. And he was a friend of Davies, and Davy got us in there. I remember being walking down there, and you'd have Tony O'Keefe and the Hawkins, all of the and so on. You'd have that some sales. Mm. Like, you'd be going in, and like the GA was a real GA factory. So it was brilliant. We were down there, we were walking, we had good money. Like, mm. you think 1986, I had £165 after tax and stamp. I used to give £5 to the guy who dropped me up and down. I used to give me mother, Kitty, got us to 80, and I used to have 80. Yes, that was good money back then, Tom. Was, Tom. To me. Jeez, you got 20 points. You <laughs> would have got 20 points back then. Every, 10 or so, every weekend we were out. It was yeah. unbelievable. We had, and uh, 
But what happened at close after 18 months? The tax free ran out and they headed off off to Singapore. And then I was here with Rodney and other lads in the club because half the club wasn't working. And Rodney mm-hmm. said, We go to America. And I remember, I think it was, um, it was around this time for 21st birthdays. And I was thinking of going. And um, I love Ireland. Mm-hmm. I love where I'm from. Yeah. I love my family. Um, I would have loved to go for a while and had to look around. But I decided to stay. Mm-hmm. And Rodney headed off. I think he was about 22. And that's 31 years ago. He married, happily married, all of their kids in America, comes home every couple of years to see the family. That could have been me. Yeah. Mm. And like, there was a lot more like Rodney, you were kind of away from Harvey Road, kind of over to Toronto. Um, my own brother-in-law, Barry Carter, is you know, over in Australia. Like Peter Daniels, is Australia, Anthony Fenton, the amount mm. of people that mm. left Nakahini. Uh, and I suppose in the 80s, when I was around, it was really bad. And then what happened was, like, well, there's nothing to do to start the stealing the cars. Yeah. And joyriding was the big thing at the yeah. time. And, like, where well, Nakahini was really unlucky is, um, was Kilmore Road. From the, from John F. Conley Road, which would be the entrance into Churchill Industrial Estate. Mm, don't worry, yeah, yeah. Up to Apple Computers. I think it's one mile of a straight road all the way up and down. Mm. Fellas had robbed cars all over Cork. And like back then it was called Opel Road because yeah. Opel was the car the of Opel choice Skorna. at the time. And Opel, and Bubble Cadets and the, the GT and the, all these different cars. And fellas so. used to be taken up and then they'd yeah. come down Harbourview Road, cross Churchville Avenue or the swing down some Valley Drive. And so every day when people listen to radio stations or picking up the Echo, they were reading about there, the chases in Nakhnehini. Mm. But a lot of people were chasing one from Nakhnehini at all. But because that road was there, Kilmore Road was there, and Opal Road, that started off with the stigma around Nakhnehini. And to be honest, what do we know? That was, that was 30 years ago, right? Uh, more than 35 years ago, and that stigma still there. Mm. Because like that would have happened when I was in school, let's say when I was 14 or 15, 81, 82, 83. Mm. Now, if you ever watch reading in the years and you see the queues outside the American Embassy in Dublin for people trying to go to the States, mm. and on just a slightly different note, and I won't go into it too much, that's what I, I sometimes am very disappointed with Irish people when they talk about refugees and immigrants coming into our country. I know, it doesn't yeah. make sense, does it? a lot of people short memories. Yeah. Like, my dad went to England in the 50s, like a lot of Irishmen, to go over and to make some money and to send money home. And then in the 80s, a lot of Irish people had to go around the world. And we were lucky. Even in the last recession? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, in the last recession. We, the amount of people we lost, especially from Rockingham and Vincent's, to go off to Australia and mm-hmm. America. And like that's why you see when people come here, I don't begrudge anyone because dear for the grace of God could go any of us. They say yeah. there's 50, 50 million Irish Americans in America. No, it's probably yeah. a conservative yeah. estimate. Yes, yeah. yeah. There was a few, uh, I think it was 2012, St. Pat's won the League of Ireland mm. and the top goal scorer was Anto Flood. And at the end of the season, he had to emigrate to Australia because he had to go back on the social welfare at the end of the season. That's madness, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And this was, when you think of Achnehini then, Unfortunately, the stigma is still there. It is. But even yeah. when we were growing up, like, 
there's a, an expectation on you, or not an expectation, but you know, when you go outside the area, people look at you and think like, oh, he's from Nakhnehini, you know, he, he's going to be into violence, he's going to be into joyride, and they think like that, just because that's where you're from, yeah. that there's an expectation. And I always give the example of going to Thunderland, we'll be getting off the bus and all the man heads be waiting for you, and look, you're not thinking that you want to fight and all this, because it was the number two bus, you know, and with Nakhnehini man kind of had a rivalry. Which all we wanted to do was go on the waltzers. <laughs> we didn't want no fight. Do you know what I mean? Because you're from up here, you're expecting to be, to be fair, tough. Yeah. To be fair, that's a man. They didn't want one either. They yeah. were just looking at these fans getting off the bus and the reputation then preceded us. Yeah. And the, the really sad part of that is that's still around now. Mm. And it actually happens when when sometimes, not all the time, when, like I'm the chairman of Savings on a football club and I'm involved with the Camogie and the development officer and Michelle still plays and she coaches and um, she's involved with cock teams and coaching as well and Ethan Orla plays so we love it we yeah. love the GA and yeah. like we're up the field now normally let's say three or four nights a week Michelle is training a couple of nights the girls are training we go up as a family and that way we're very lucky you know mm. but um, we go to matches I was in a match there right to maybe September and halfway through the match this young fella from the opposition team showed it you're only a bunch of mm. and the names and the descriptions this is a 15 year old boy because mm. we were winning yeah. the match we were playing great hurling and but this child he didn't learn that mm. he, he didn't come up with that of his own free, of his yeah. own mind that stuff he's listened to at home or around his community mm. about our community and it's not just happening with us because I talk to people in other GA clubs um, and the North specifically, and they get it as well. They do, yeah. And the thing about it, we probably get it the worst because we are where we're from. And it's really heartbreaking sometimes because, um, like, we are all GA people, we're all volunteers, we're playing the game we love. It's an Irish mm. game, we're really proud of hurling and football and camogie and ladies' football. And, like, and I remember Michelle, my wife, went to a county board one time, it was maybe six or seven years ago, there was one really bad incident at a match. And Michelle would roll in a very, um, a very detailed letter of what had happened. And someone turned around to her and said, the board, and they said, uh, she, you should be well used to it. Oh, what a yeah. comment to I make. Know, <laughs> and Michelle made a point and she said, yeah, I am. And she said, uh, and I always got on with it. But now I have two children playing and my children ha shouldn't have to mm. face that kind of discrimination and that kind of, uh, oh, what's the word I look for? Like, it's, it's hate as well. Like, yeah. But you know, the thing is, it's not just children either. It's as adults giving but, it from the sideline to innocent children yeah. that like have not got to do with any history of Nakhnehini or any criminality or drugs or anything. They're just innocent children playing Camogie or GA. But and, then they could get abuse from grown men and women on the sideline. And you think about it, James, you see it, and it's not just in there, like we, you see there what happens in racism and sexist and people with... Um, or uh, anti-gay, you know, you see, you, you read stories about yeah. what some of the LGBTQI yeah. community yeah. go through and uh, some colour people go through the racism, the hatred there, as you said, you yeah. know. Like, I love Ireland. Mm. I, I love... Yeah. I, I, I especially love, Cork. Yeah, especially <laughs> Cork, and especially the North side of Cork, as Tommy Taylor would say, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, like, like I, I live in Kitty Road. Me and Michelle, when we got married, we could have bought a house anywhere. We bought a house as close to Nottingham as we could get, and that yeah. was Cathedral Road. 
And that's one of the other big drawbacks about the community is if you want to buy a house and you're from Loch Nahimi or Churchill or Grohan, you have to leave. Because there's no private houses up there. Most of the houses are either council or they were bought by people who lived in it, who are council tenants themselves and they're living in them. Yeah. Mm. So what we're seeing now... We're heading out white church direction now. You know what I mean, James? And it's a disaster. It's a disaster for the community in Octahini and surrounding mm. areas because successful people have to move out. And listen, there's nothing wrong with coming social housing. And mm. I can't, my dad still lives in Octahini, right? Now he owns his own house, but it was a social housing. You care from it, you mm. care from it. That's who we were. Yeah. And like some people, when they look at people on social housing, they look down on them or they think, you know, for a freebie. Like, I bought my own house. My two sisters built their own houses. My dad bought his house in the end. My dad had to give up work for years because my mother was sick and he had to raise three kids. Mm. You know, that's, that was life. Mm. But then we were able to walk through that. We went to school. Uh, we got educated. We got jobs and we built our own lives. And so. Where would we be without social housing, Nick? Social housing gives us a platform where our basic needs of shelter mm. and warmth are met. So then we can go on to become, you know, full, you know, live full lives and become good citizens to give back and help yeah. others. Like, do you know what I think in, in contemporary society around today is there's so much competition for houses that when somebody gets a social housing, there can be a lot of toxic energy yes. directed towards them because there's so many others can't get the foot in yep. the ladder. Mm. And then it's easier to point down rather than point up. Yes. And uh, like um, you can feel the frustration. Like I talk to people every week. I have a clinic every week and they come in. Like when I started in politics first, 12 years ago, and I, sp I suppose just getting into how I got into politics. Yeah. Um, I loved Irish history, I always did. Um, I loved Irish history and maths. <laughs> they were my two subjects. Um, you lost but, me with maths now. Yeah. Irish history now, but maths wouldn't be my forte at all. And, uh, but I actually, I didn't like school. I found school hard. Um, I was found languages very hard. Like I've always wanted to be able to speak Askwilga. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I look at my own two daughters, no home at the Wales girls, and they can speak the language. Uh, like, it just shows you that it's how, it's how it's being taught. Yeah. That if you're in the school, which is either a Wales girl or it's bilingual, mm. you learn it naturally because you're in yeah. there. It's conversational. You're not, like, you, you're you not, know, not knowing languages, not being able to learn them is a massive attribute as well to being dyslexic. So... But you know what I think yeah. back in the day, it was like when you're doing Irish class, you might get a, a William Butler Yeats poem, Ask yeah. and you have to recite it. But, but mm -hmm. that doesn't really suit you in the real mm -hmm. world. It doesn't yeah. tell you how to ask for directions or to get something in the shop. But I think in Irish schools, like it's conversational and you pick it up a little easier. Like yeah. I remember, like uh, my wife Michelle went to the Gwail a couple of times, right? Mm -hmm. She loved it. She reckoned it was the best thing she ever done in her life. Can she speak Irish? She did. She can't speak Irish. Michelle went to Thomas Paxweeney, so she went to an, uh, she went to Nakhnehini School, mm, yeah. which is an English speaking school. But um, like she had a fabulous experience in that school, and we yeah. we touch we touch back to that in a minute. But like so, 
in school, I always wanted to be able to speak English and English, but I think to me, you're right. I'd probably, my spelling is atrocious. Mm. And the joke is, no, if you're ever watching me on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram now, which we're on now, oh, I haven't got to TikTok. Oh. <laughs> my daughter's going to let me go on TikTok to say the same for a man of my age, just uh, got to do it. So I'm better off TikTok. But if you ever see a spell, if you ever see one of my tweets or posts and the spelling is wrong, I've done it myself. Yeah. Right, so if you see the spelling is perfect, that's it's you know complicated. Post time you put up, you understand it right. Well, that's Michelle because yeah. uh, I even know my oldest daughter, Aoife. Even all I would read them out, I would say read it out because um, it's just um, yeah. I often thought was I dyslexic and never knew, mm-hmm. you know. And listen, my spelling has definitely got much better because of being in politics and writing speeches mm-hmm. and, and making representations for people, and you learn. Yeah, you know, yeah. and like I was lucky when I went back to college. I went to college when I was taught to treat by night. I came out of the man, and I suppose I was small, but all over the place. But yeah, and you were saying before that when you were you were interested in maths and Irish, but in the man you were saying off camera that um, you were involved in a debating society or a debate mm, yeah. team, so you had a natural flair for speaking up. Yeah, and like, like I remember, it was the time of the nineteen eighty one hunger strikes. Yeah, and there was a big debate in the school. And um, I was there, and I suppose I was, I was debating about the armed struggle, and about the hunger strikes, and what it meant, and what the, what they were trying to achieve by not being, uh, I suppose they were fighting against being criminalised. Margaret Thatcher mm. was trying to make them criminals, and they were political pre- prisoners, they were freedom fighters. And I remember debating that in the Man Hall, and that kind of started and. In 1981, it was the as the hunger strike, Marley um stood as the Sinn Féin H-Block Armour Prison um, candidate in Cockney Central, and um, I was only f- I was 13, and I remember I was asked to go over a few leaflets because being in Sinn Féin that time was certainly not a popular thing to to be involved with, you know. And I was I was 13, you know, and people knew I suppose. Um, I suppose that I was Republican-minded as a 13-year-old. And was that through your mum or dad or what? No, actually what happened was my mother's uncle had died in the War of Independence and my mother used to tell the story how he was shot, the tans, black and tans shot him and that he couldn't go to a hospital because they were waiting at the hospitals. Yeah. And um, he died of sepsis after uh, being shot in the leg, blood poisoning and yeah. killed him. So, and my mother said, the family, that was there. Mm. And then my dad would have been a carpenter. My, my dad's brothers were carpenters. My grandfather was a carpenter. And they would have been the Labour Party. And back then, the Labour Party would have been kind of in the lines of James Connolly, yeah. which had been he Republican Labour yeah. Party, you know. Yeah. So you had unions and Republicans on one side, and then you had Republicans and freedom fighters on the other side. And even though it was never pushed to home, like, my dad would be a quiet man, James, as you know, self right? So it was never something we talked about, but you know it was there. Yeah. And then when I was involved in Vincent's, Vincent's is a very Republican GA club. Mm. Do you want to tell us the history and background of Vincent's? Yeah, that's yeah. Really interesting. I, I suppose just, just to finish off with <laughs> yeah. the school, uh, the politics. Yeah. So what happened then was, um, it was your man, Claire, Annette, old trapping leaflets in 1981, kind of started me down... Probably rode a mile and went down anyway, but that certainly put me down there with Maureen Farrell. And a number of years later, Maureen Farrell was murdered in uh, Gibraltar in 1988 
ودانيال ميكان شوان سافيج اندي اس اس امبوش دومن دو رون ارمز ان شارم ديد اند داس واي اي اوبسي كمارليت فار اند اي ام اكشلي اوبن لي دايل ويت هورني سمارليت فار از ويل فروم هوز فروم غالوي اند يا اتس جست اتس I just think of her all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you were you were you were very impressionable around a very um, heightened point of Irish like, history. You might remember the time when anyone from the north side, there was black flags hanging from every second pole, and they were hanging on people's windows. Like mm. whether people know it or not, um, the north side, especially working class areas, were very strong Republican areas. No, she she didn't get a huge vote, but that time then there was just. It was owned by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So that kind of started to be down. Yeah. And then what happened, I think, I switched off the Vincents for a while then because um, I started playing Davy Mac at me of all with Vincents. My dad, like my dad is a Pearshig man. All the ghouls were Pearshig, <laughs> right? Where's the ghouls originally from? Barry's Place in Cathedral Road. Oh, it's actually yeah. right across the road from where I live, just down oh, the yeah, next yeah, terrace. Yeah, yeah, Brian yeah. is still down that's there. That's right, that's right. Uncle Brian. And what happened was uh, I had an Uncle Ger, who uh, they say was the first... Piercy went to play with Cork. There's a lovely photograph. Like anyone from Piercy, no, who's watching this won't believe this. But if you go into my dad's house and Harvey Road in Ottenheeny, one first photograph you'll see is a Piercy, the Uncle Jarkool in the Piercy jersey with all the cups. Mm. And it was uh, the King of the Ash uh, taken over from Piercy, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 years ago. Maybe. Yeah. And in Hannah Barnes, there's a photograph of my grandfather. Playing for uh, Temple United, they won a cup in uh, 1956 or something. Is that Francie? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you see, Francie, uh, my dad's other brother then was a uh, Francie was good at everything. And what happened was Francie went to the soccer, and that time there was a ban. If you went playing soccer, you good couldn't good. play a GA, even though Francie did a ball. But he preferred the soccer. And from all accounts, he was a beautiful player. He was meant to be great player, yeah, yeah Temple United. And then, you know, Christy, my dad's other brother, God rest his soul, he played in the first Piercy team to win the Junior Hurling County in somewhere on Piercy. You know, he's going to kill me if I get this wrong, but <laughs> I think it was like the 46 Piercy won the Junior Hurling County. And I had an uncle on the team on goal. And then you have my uncle Brian, who was involved with Ferdinand Callens, and um, remember Ferdinand Callens. And then, like, and I know no, we're going off, but from the GA, you had teams like Saint Anthony's and Saint Anne's. There was unbelievable mm. GA people. And then on the other side, my mother's family, you had Tom. My grandfather's name was Tom McCarthy, and he played hurling with with these teams, and he played my um, uncle Mikey Mack, uh, John Mack. There were some great hurlers there, and my uncle Stevie Mack then. So. Like, there was a fierce tradition of GA. So I started playing with Vincent's, um, and I loved it. I loved hurling. And the football is handy. Kind of a hurler, yeah? Yeah, I was a big, strong guy. (laughs) 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 I was in full forward, or centre forward, and uh, you see, the thing about it is, that's the one thing about the GA, uh, that, um, like, I was only a very average player. But you could still play. Hmm. And that's the one thing that's kind of going on the GA now. Yeah, it's, becoming re- like. it's becoming really elitist. The standards are really high. Yeah. That I don't know if I was if I was 25 now, would I get a game? Because it's just like the physical fitness of the guys is phenomenal. Yeah. Like, it's I'm like to be fair yeah. to them now. Like, yeah. like I remember when I played every Saturday night or Sunday night after the match, you go for a few pints. Most of the guys I meet now in the club in Vincent's, Mm. Most of them actually don't even drink. Yeah. Their, their physique is fabulous. Their attitude towards training, their diet. It's just, 
it's got really professional for an amateur game. Yeah. But uh, that's why I love, I love playing hurling football. And like, I travel all over. I remember going up to Spittle years ago for, uh, to play hurling matches. And then Vincent's used to, virtually every year or every second year, go up the north. And we would have been in Cross McGlynn and Keedy and Kilkeel. Um, and what would happen then, there was always a strong bond with the club and with different clubs in the north. And like back then, our, our president would have been Tristola Barra and he would have been a famous Republican in the north side from Blairley Street. Mm-hmm. Never drank, never smoked. He set up, he was one of the people who helped set up the Crawlerbrock Credit Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, his wife would have been a, a she would have been a sto- an Irish storyteller, you know, the whole family would have been steeped. And then you would have had your Neils, like your Shears and Vincent's. Like Vincent's was actually a very small club. It was about a half a dozen families made it up. You were saying it was mm. it was made up in the High House. Yeah, yeah. The, the High House pub in Blarney Street. And like the club, the club was named after Sunday's Well Church, St. Vincent's. And it was founded in 1943. And actually last Monday, it was the 100th anniversary of the death of Tyke Barry. And when I got into it, too much Tyke Barry wrote the first book on hurling. He came from Blarney Street. Uh, he set up uh, a hurling club called Sun as well. And he set up the first Camogie club in Cork. Cool. He was a trade unionist. He was a playwright. He wrote, um, he was a referee. And he was killed 100 years ago in the Bally Kindler in County Down. He was shot by a British soldier. One shot. And reports are that he had the biggest funeral. His funeral was as big, if not bigger, than Tomás McCartney's and Thomas McSweeney. Yeah. And in recognition of that, Vincent's called on the 14 team Tyg Barry. Isn't there a Tyg Barry road? There is. Up by Apple. Yeah. yeah. And we used to call on under 13 team Roger Ryan after the famous Vincent's guy uh, who tragically died, who was a Republican. And then on the 15 team was called Bally Cannon, named after the six area volunteers who were murdered in Bally Cannon and Kerry Pike. Mm. So like, like the history, the tradition, like a lot of people might realise that if you go down Blarney Street across the road from Sunday's Well School, you have a plaque in the wall to Dennis Spriggs yeah. who was shot there. I'm living on Spriggs Road now, Sean. Yeah, and then you Spriggs Road after him. But then yeah. if you go up Dublin Hill, on the right hand side, you'll see the, the Celtic Cross to the Laney Brothers, Carly, Elias and Jeremiah. From the GA Club was named And after. then the GA Club was named after him. You were telling us that they ambushed the Black and Tans coming out of Collins' barracks. Out, out in um, St. Luke's. And in, in reprisal, then they shot the Delaney brothers and they burned Cork. That was the night they burned Cork. Mm. But then if you go up the hill, you have Brian Dillon's, which is named after a, a Republican. And then if you go down the hill to the Glen, there's a black in the Glen jersey, you know, the Glen last the county finalist or Sunday. And I, when I look at the Glen jersey, I love it because you yeah. see the black and the Glen club put that in there to commemorate 1916. And then if you go up the hill to the Pear they don't have any Tom in their jersey. They have the red hand of Ulster, Ulster, less the Tom. And when they found in the Pearshig, they said, until Ireland is united, they wouldn't have the Tom on their crest. No, mm-hmm. there's probably That's tens nice. of thousands of people walking around the North Side. Didn't know that. And don't know these. Yeah. And the pro traditions in the clubs, you know, of, um, and then you had Farrah Callahan's. And what's the history of Farrah Callahan's? He was a priest. And he happened to sleep in the wrong house. He went to a house on Sunday as well. And uh, um, the Brits came in, kicked in the door, and uh, they shot him dead in the bed. And he's actually buried in Cloheen Church. If you pass Cloheen Church, yeah, yeah. there's a grave right at the side of the church where Farrah Callan is buried. And then um, 
about maybe three or four hundred yards out the road, there's another plaque to Mrs. Bowles, who was an unfamous Irish Republican. She used to ride the horses. Um, she was she was a great humanitarian and. Uh, so there's great history yeah. there. And yeah. like, even even um didn't Thomas McCartan live on Black Blackpool, Joel Griffith Street, was it or Thomas Davis Street or mm. one of them, you know, that's where he was raided. Or was that where he was killed? It was actually where the daybreak shop is now. Yeah. Right above it there's a plaque. Across the road from the church. Across the road from the church. And on the other side of the church then, Great William O'Brien Street, there's uh, a monument to was to Thomas McCartan. So and you think of it, Thomas McCartan went to the mine and Thomas Maximini went to the mine and Tyke Barry yeah. went to the mine, the history. Like last week, the mine celebrated 210 years as, uh, yeah. as of the history. I think I spotted a photograph of you there, James. You, you know what I mean? I smiled in there, as you say, for uh, 210 years. <laughs> and if you went back 20 years ago, they wouldn't have photographs of him to me, you know? I know. Or even 10, I said, Tom. But uh, I was thinking, then my, my imagination ran when I seen that. So they had up photographs of North students yeah. so I was thinking you know if we ever had a school reunion I want to sit at the table with John Creedon Terence McSweeney and Neil Tobin and you'd oh, have yeah. a right mix there wouldn't you but, well, like when you look at the man website and look at the people who went to the school from artists to sports people to politicians Jonathan Rhys Moyers and everything yeah, like, mm. it, it was some history there wasn't there some history yeah, yeah. and when you think of it Patrick Harbin and listen Patrick Harbin, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I suppose and without delving into it, there was a lot of things happened with the priests and Christian brothers, which were a disgrace, and there were sins, unbelievable what they done. But then there was a lot of good priest, uh, 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 priests and Christian brothers when I grew up and went through the man, because the man was free education. Mm. 210 years ago when you couldn't get educated, especially yeah. if you were a, a nationalist or a Catholic when there was no education there. And that's what the Christian brothers right and the Edmund Rice Trust brought in. No, I'm not forgiving them for the stuff, the bad stuff they've done. Mm. They should never be forgiven for that. But it should also be remembered. The Willow coming in because Blackpool and areas like that, John Griffith Street, there were slums back then. There were tenements. Mm. And without that education, you look who came out of school, what it has accomplished, which is yeah, phenomenal. And yeah. when I look back at my time and the man, you know, wasn't great, but I often, you know, when I, when I seen that, I was actually very honoured that, you know, I was... Uh, put up as a notable student amongst all those legends and it got me thinking said you know what the school is 210 years old the amount of history attached to it it's bigger than any principal or any management or any teacher or any student and you know to, to even come through it and this has such a place in the north side you know on the top of the hill there and you know it was just a yeah. big honour you know to be to come through that and to be noted, noted. but you're talking about slums there you know but I do you know the entrance to the Shandon Court Hotel was the mall, do you know? Yes. Well, if you do the gate, if you look across, there's an, a lane there. They must be the smallest houses I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's when you're going right up towards the fucking crane. Yeah, and you yeah, yeah. You, you know, when you're walking around there, you would just imagine the history of what it was like there 200 but, years ago. But you know what? That history is now, and it's like, that was owned by uh, James Danielson's. And they're the people who built the Shaky Bridge and gave it to oh, Daly Bridge, yeah. And they used to have the Butter Exchange. They used to, at one stage, it was the biggest Butter Exchange in the world. Um, uh, they used to ship for the English Army and the British government, they used to ship butter all over the world. And a lot of those houses that you described, and if you go up to Dominic Street, yeah. they were actually built for workers. Oh, because when, I suppose when you go forward to modern times, when the, when the last... Um, 
I suppose one of the last things they were also big into Tanora, which is if, mm-hmm. like if you're not from Cork, people will get Tanora. Yeah. Tanora. It's like a little red lemonade, isn't it? Cork style. Yeah. And that, that was another Cork thing that came out of that area and the uh, James Daly's and Son and the history, like the Butter Exchange. And and there's a plaque in the wall then uh, to a, a woman from Blarney Street who went to America and she led the unions over there. I can't think of her name now. It's just, but right above the Maldron. Was she in the running for the bridge to be named after and she lost out to Mary Ellums? She, well, she was one of them. Um, and the story was she went off to, she lost her family in America, her husband, her kids, and then she went fighting for the unions. Yeah. And there was actually a great festival that the Shannon Street Community Association run every year. Yeah. They're bringing guest speakers. And they talk about, I suppose, human rights and union rights and, and stuff like that. Um, That's right. But you know when the, you know the Mary Ellums Bridge, yeah. there was a vote to see who they named yeah, the bridge remember. after. And it was Mary Ellums. And that, that lady you're speaking about there, but obviously Mary Ellums won it. Yeah. But it would have been great to have an outsider, yeah. considering where the bridge is coming from, that that kind of general area. Yeah, but it was great. It was a woman. It was great. Yeah, it was a know. woman though as well. And like... Um, Jamie. <sighs> Ask, we'll ask Ron there to figure it out there for us, get that lady's name. <laughs> famous trade unionist from yeah. Shannon Street direction. Yeah. But look, we'll go back on track, Tommy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you finished the mine. What happened then? Okay, I finished the mine. We're working in Halifax Island. Then was our work. Um, then was doing the kind of odd jobs, uh, the building size, bits and shops, bits and pieces. And it, I suppose it ties back into the North Man. Then again, I went for the job in Don Deary's, Ballinahine, which is on the up Dublin Hill mm. on the way to Kerry Pike. And there was a man, Oliver, um, um, he was, he was, um, he was the kind of uh, the teacher, and he was the teacher in the man that would help you with your, um, what's the one I'm looking for? Work experience and that. Yeah, and kind of career guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Ali Conlan and, um, he rang up the, the guy who was doing the interview and he said, listen, Tommy's a good guy, give him a chance. No, listen, I had to check out a career in school, you know, I mm. skirted the edges. I, I did me leaving cert, one great leaving cert. My mother had asked me when I was, when I was 15 or 16, would I do that for her? And I done it. And I, so I got leaving cert. I passed it. And then, um, I was through help from the North man that I got a job in Don Daly's Bellina. And I worked there for 15 years. And I suppose there's an Ori coming from the heart of Nottinghini to go out to Car- out on the way out to Carrie de Vere. That's actually one of the one things I've always, I've got a great respect for farmers and for people living in the country. Mm. Because the city people, we don't understand how much work they put into mm. their farms. It's not a 39 hour week or a 40 or a 50 hour week. And you see them up all times in the night and weekends. Like mm. I remember I was clocking out there on a Saturday evening. I was going home to have me shawl. I was heading into town, you know, yeah, yeah. Th- th- these, and that's, that's the one thing. And that's the one thing in life. I think the more experiences you have in life gives you a better chance of having the right opinions. And, and because the more people you meet and the more sides of stories you see, you get a better understanding. And I was lucky. So I, I worked there for 15 years and then I worked in Churchill for the logistics company, uh, actually who originally James Daly's, the original town, and, and then they moved up to Churchill and they were bought by a few different companies over the years. And I was a logistics man. I, I was a, I started off, like when I started off in Don Daly's, I was loading trucks at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. 
and it was the best education I ever got. Loading crates of milks, yeah. and uh, cartons of milk onto trucks. It was tough going. And what it does, it, it gives you, you appreciate things then in life. Mm. And if you want to work in six days, we used to work six mornings, three o'clock in the morning, we'd go in two o'clock some mornings. Like I worked, I used to get one day off every Christmas. And you ask anyone who's in, mil- in the military, trade now, that's the way it was. You got one day off. Yeah. And then I said, listen, this is, this is not only for a single man. Do you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine the other day, Ray, was doing a course in CAT and he said, uh, I'm doing a business studies course. Why don't you come up with me? And uh, we headed out and I never looked back. Mm. And when they think of it, like, I know it's MTU now, but I had a fabulous experience in CAT. Yeah. And I actually nearly gave up after six months because it was our first round of tests. And I was so insecure about my spelling that I remember going up to a guy, Paul Miner, and who was the head of the course. And there was another guy, John Miner, the Coxine Hurler manager. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I just, I was, I was ashamed. Mm-hmm. I was ashamed of my spelling. Mm. And he said, well, it's not an English test. We want to see that you understand what business studies is, what we're talking, that you can, that you can explain it. And I did the sort, and I did the diploma. I actually haven't finished my bachelor. I have four of the six done. I just ran out of time. Mm-hmm. And it's something I look forward to doing because, like, um, no one in our family had gone to third level. Mm. My sister Sharon was the first person in, in my family, and she went back as a mature student. Um, like, we all went to work. That's just the way it was. Yeah. Mm. So to go, get an opportunity to go back, and that's why I'm really, like, I've had a couple of meetings with the, and emails and conversations with the MTU, no, uh, uh, CIT back then, and yeah. UCC, because I believe if there's uh, campuses on the north side, right, that young people can see it and they say, I want to go to college, I want to study. And it's like what you see with, I see my wife there now in relation to girls in sport. Yeah. If you can't see it, you can't be it. True. And that's why you think that's, so I had a great experience in the CIT and, um, how did you end up getting into politics then, like full time as your job? Actually, what happened, it, it was, um, the party was looking for something to run in Cock North Central and Sinn Féin hadn't won the seat there for 90 years. Fucking hell. I remember talking with Mick Nugent, who was a legend. So I swear to God, the man, I, I just, he's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant and a good friend. Yeah. And Mick said, uh, would you have a go off it? And I did. And it was funny, like you look at elections, I got to see because no one else was left. What year was this song? 1998, 19, two, sorry, 2009. Yeah. But I didn't get enough votes to win the seat. The only reason I got to see it. Transfers. Transfers and everyone else got eliminated. I just happened to stay ahead, one ahead. Mm. And it shows, it was actually a very good thing to happen to me because you respect the vote. The vote's a really powerful mm. thing and everyone counts. And sometimes you meet people who don't vote. Now, listen, you want everyone to vote for you, but I just want everyone to vote because there was too many men and women give up their lives mm. for Irish freedom yeah. and for Irish people to have a right to choose who they have. And then once I got into it in 2009, I just, um, I just love it because I think I, I said to you before about my mother, God rest her, uh, she was very sick one time in hospital. Oh, the old regional hospital, which is the, the, the CUH now. And the matron gave my dad a ticket, a train ticket to bring my mother to the Martha Hospital in Dublin 
to see an orthopedic, to see a heart surgeon. And we had this quiet man who went home and he thought about it. And the following day, he went out to the nurse and he, or the matron. He said, there. He said, my wife is here, Leon, and you'll give me one train ticket. How she's supposed to go to Dublin? So the matron was kind of cranky and she went in the back and she came up with a second train ticket. So and my dad, I remember talking with dad years later and he said, if she had been from a different part of Cork, would they treat her different? Mm-hmm. Was it because she was not in Heaney? My mother was a lady. Yeah. Right? And my dad always felt that that inequality, mm. that it's an Irish society. And in the end, he gave back the two tickets and my uncle Stevie drove her to Dublin. He said, we don't want nothing for me. We don't want nothing for nothing. Like my dad, every penny he had, he rented a room in Dublin and stayed up there to my mother for months. And the point about families then, people would throw in a few bob and send it up every second week, bit of food. Yeah. Like, mm. and I remember my dad telling me stories like that and my mother about, we, we like, we were probably luckier the most. And we were still being discriminated on. That's that uh, give you a born and desire to want to yeah. change it. Yeah. And it still does. And it's still happening right now today. And that's the yeah. thing about it. Um, you see people who are sick, especially with children with disabilities. That's the one thing that, um, that's the one thing I can't get, get over. You know, I work with families now who have children who have additional needs and they can't get services. And they're, they're illegally entitled to these services because their children, these children are the same as every other child in mm-hmm. this state. And they're being treated different. Because you have a disability. It's like children with autism, they can't find a school and stuff like that. Mm. Like I, I work with cases now when you see, um, you see parents who are breaking, who, who are doing everything for their kids mm. and all they need is a bit of help, a bit of support. Now, I said we wouldn't go into the politics, but for me, that's what got me into politics. Yeah. Stories like that, how you see, how we spoke about Nathan Heaney earlier, how they built the states, and because they were working class social housing estates, didn't put a playground in, didn't put a sod of grass in there. They just threw thousands of people into an estate and said, off you go. And then when some people went around the wrong road afterwards, they said, I'm not sure what would you expect? Yeah. You know, like, I think all I know for is equality. Mm-hmm. Everyone is given a fair chance. No, not everyone can take it, but at least you give people opportunity. My wife said there. Uh, Said to me, my wife, my wife in fact is a mature student. As I say, she went to Thomas Maxwell with her two brothers and the three of them came out went to college. But after Aoife was born 15 years ago, Michelle went back and she did P in history in UCC. And we were talking about it a few weeks ago. No one in Dr. Heaney was ever asked, did you want to become a doctor or a mm-hmm. dentist? Mm-hmm. If you go to third level, you were, they were telling you to do arts. Yeah. You know? That was and the most short amount, I think. Yeah. And like Anthony did graphic design, Barry did physics, right? And he's 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 went teaching afterwards. But that's because he was driven, right? But Michelle made a point to me was there was all those kids in other schools being told to go for these electrical engineering, uh the traditional because, sciences like you know. But why weren't people from working class areas being told that? I know people might say, Tommy, you've you're not in stop about that. Because if you look at mm. the statistics, it shows you. Lawyers, solicitors, doctors, uh, doctors 
the vast majority of them mm-hmm. are coming, their parents mm-hmm. or their family or their, so, their social economic background sends them there. And you go into working class estates, right? Uh, you have carpenters, plumbers, masons, nothing wrong with it because all my family were carpenters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there should be an equal choice. Yeah. And that's, I suppose, that's why you got me into politics. And I love it. Yeah. I love, and I love Irish politics. I actually, I, I would watch and read about politics all over the world and history because I think that's the one thing you, that's, that's the one thing if, if you read and you learn about what went wrong in other countries and what went right, it kind of gives you a chance to, um, hopefully make the right decisions yeah. when you get an opportunity. You're the first TD from Knocknahaney. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what it was like to be elected in and, you know, the pride that I must have given you? Yeah, it was a... Uh, and, like, to go from Knocknahaney uh, not having, or North Central not having, Sinn Féin not having a seat for 90 years to then being elected as a TD, you know, that transformation. Yeah, it, it was a... Uh, it's actually, it's a bit surreal because... Um, you're up in Dublin or you're, you're going to places in, let's say, Deputy Gould or Chuck the Doyle of Gould. Like, I'm Tommy Gould. Now, people know up in the post this is Thomas Gould and the reason for that is my mother who used to always criticise anyone who'd call me anything but Thomas. <laughs> so when I ran for politics, I put that on all my <clears> posters <throat> and all my literature in memory of my mother. Yeah. You know? But anyone up in Akinhini or Vince's Feed or Farnley or wherever you go, they call me Tommy. Yeah. And, uh, I remember being up in the Doyle with my family today, we, the first day going in there, and um, it was unbelievable that a fellow from Latin Heaney, that no one had done it before, and to be honest, no one had a chance. Mm. Like, how many people from Latin Heaney ever ran for the Doyle? The only one I knew about was Davy Mack, God rest him, and that's because Fianna Fáil, I mean, that that's because he didn't get the nomination, and he had to run as an independent. But outside the DFE, I never knew anyone else from Lachnaheen. Tony Fitzever run from the Dial. Only the same time as me. Yeah, yeah. So up to that, we were breaking new ground. And then to get elected, do you know what's really, it, it, it actually, it gives me real praise is that there was people in Montanati or Sundayswell or Glamour or Tower and Blarney or Dunmore voted for me. Like, they're voting for a fellow from Rottenheaney. That's outside your stronghold, like. Yes. And that's why I, that's one of the reasons I think we have a great country that there are really a lot of good people. The vast yeah. majority of people will give someone a chance. They don't care where you come from. And that's, that's, I suppose, the other people I, um, that are really honored that they gave me this opportunity. And it's really humbling when you look at people. You all expect your own to vote for you, you yeah. know, and like Michelle, we used to be writing speeches and Sharon and Orlean and Claire and Magello used to be all knocking the doors. And then you had Jason Daly and Cullum and Ian and the boys of Poles and Lenny and mm. like, I tell you, I was very lucky because I see other politicians and political parties pay people to put their stuff up. Mm. Where are your friends and family and yeah. just norm, ordinary people? I, I remember um, you're going up to White Church. Yeah. I remember giving uh, Kevin Goulden 20 posters for White Church. You know, as Kevin said, Can they do anything? He's up the walls now. He's running teams. He's playing himself with kids. I said, Could you put up a few posters for me? And that happened. Like, like you have Gally Flynn there now and John O'Callaghan. Like, that man must have walked a million miles for Sinn Fein and for me. Yeah. 
It's, I'm not joking. Yeah. Like people, yeah. every week he's out and has has been for years. And sometimes people look at him and they say, God, he's out doing leaflets, right? But who wants to do it? And it, it, it wouldn't be, some people might think that's the most important job. But a fellow like him who's on the ground, who's meeting you and meeting mm. you every day and uh, people know there's a local guy there and if there's a problem, like he'd often ring me and he'd say, James said X, will you look into that? There's a problem there. Mm. Because you have local people on the ground who'd ring you up. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's a big transition though from going from a city councillor to the Doyle. Mm. And what sometimes you forget about when you speak on television, like I'm looking at, like I've always looked for the council meetings to be recorded, but in hindsight, no, <laughs> I, I was probably better off at the time to me, you know, because uh, I was probably a lot freer in the way I spoke. Well, no, when national media is watching it, you have to be on the ball. On the ball, yeah. And it's very unforgiving if you're not. And that's why I try to be, I, like I try to do, um, I try to know what I talk about. I try to do a lot of research. You'd be I don't nervous when you're when you're dressing the dial. Is a lot of pressure comes with it because you've some politicians that they've been in there for years. The fathers have been in there. There's dynasties. Yeah. Think, think of the Covenies and all them. Like that, they're brought up and bred in it, and they're so comfortable in that space. And I look at you know, Michal Michal Martin is a great talker, and he looks very comfortable. Mary Lou is brilliant as well, never phased. But I wonder, like, you know, for people that us new to him, do they be nervous following in the likes of Mary Lou and Michal? Well, I know some TDs are. I don't. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes it would probably be better if I was a little. Mm-hmm. Because when I speak in the dial, I don't think of the cameras. I normally speak to it, whether it's the Taoiseach or the Taoiseach, the minister. I speak to that person. And it's with passion too, because it's, it's, it's true to what you're about. I know what happens, you forget about mm-hmm. everything else that goes on. But I suppose just as your viewers know, I actually have the shakes. Yeah. It's hereditary. I actually get it from Uncle Jeremiah, God rest his soul. And sometimes when I speak, people see the shakes or I might have a quiver in my voice. <laughs> no, I could take medication for that. Uh, beat the blockers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, because I don't feel it's a strong medicine. And I don't want to be taking that for the rest of my life. Mm. And if that was the case, I'd be 12 years into it now. Yeah. So sometimes I can see my hand shaking, brain calm inside. Yeah. So, uh, and I actually love speaking in the dial. The problem because of COVID and the restrictions and mm. there's time restrictions now, it hasn't been like a normal dial. So we haven't, like, there's loads of things I want to challenge. Like there's issues going on in in the area represent that I want to fight for in the dial. I want to see people saying, because I don't want to be one of these politicians, people saying, oh, shall we elected him? We never saw him again. No, no. And that's the one good thing about social media. You're accountable. And people can see when you do get an opportunity to raise the issue. No, not everyone might follow you, but you might say to me, you never raise that issue. And I'd say, check my Facebook page or check my Twitter account and you'll see it. It's up there. Yeah. So, uh, what about um, your current role in Sinn Féin is around, you're the spokesperson for Sinn Féin around drug use, recovery and stuff like that. But you've, your own family's been affected by that. Yeah. Well, Are you okay to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Like I suppose my I'm addiction recovery and well-being. Yeah. Um, and that's, all, that's all remit here too. Yeah. And listen, can I tell you, um, I thought I knew a lot. You know, I thought I knew because of where we from, because we had friends and had family members. 
Um, I didn't. I didn't. It's the more I get into it, you know, the more people who are in, in recovery or people who are in addiction or people who are providing services, either for people in addiction or for people in recovery that you see. I did a focus group there. I did a policy there and all Ireland strategy and a chart of rights for people in recovery. And we did a focus group and when it came along the focus group, it was brilliant. You're talking to people who are in recovery. A lot of people think like whether it's drink or drugs or gambling or, or eating disorders that once you're in recovery, you're in recovery. You know, like no. it's, it's not like that. No. Recovery is a different thing completely. Yeah. It's, it's long term and it's not it, process. And part, part of recovery. If we look at recovery from a recovery, a recovery capital model, which might be something that what, what might be interest to you, but part of recovery is addressing the drug and alcohol use. But an, the other part of it then is social capital, you know, having connections with people, mm. you know, cultural capital, being given opportunities to try new things. And that's where people come up against blocks. Like, let's say if you look at, I work in drug and alcohol services now, you try to address the drug and alcohol use, but it's fruitless if they don't know where they're going to be sleeping tomorrow night. Mm. 100%. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And if they don't have a job, or yeah. if they can't get access to their kids, yeah. or if they don't have something to do when they come home from work. Yeah. Um, that's one of the great things about sport and about the arts. Um, I have an uncle, Stevie Mack, and Stevie must be in the year, uh, maybe over 40 years. And um, I remember he used, he used to bring friends up to me, mother, and my man was playing the kettle, I'd be sent off the sharp shop and have your own, if you had a pack of gold grain, yeah. right? You remember sharp shop, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you'll be coming back and, what it was, Calvary it, Grove, sorry, yeah. it was people in recovery and there were, um, my uncle used to bring me after the meetings, he'd bring them up to the, pass away another hour and you talk about social mm. and it was given something to do and I remember I'd be talking about them, but I remember some of these guys, they'd actually, they'd end up taking up a musical instrument or some of them might get involved in running the mm. GA team or yeah. a soccer team and it gave purpose to their lives, it gave something to do. as well, like. And so that's why I'm really enjoying the role. It's, um, I really hope we can make a difference. We're talking to, there's some really fabulous people out there with good ideas. Yeah. And they live the experience. Like, you're, like we're here now, right? Who would have saw the two of you here? Mm-hmm. You couldn't, I tell you to me, yeah. you could, James, you couldn't imagine how successful the two of you have become talking about the issue that nearly killed all of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And thousands more like you. Right. And from that point of view, it's, I take my hat off to you. It's an unbelievable achievement for you personally and your families. Right. And you're looking around the new studio here. It's really something to be proud of. Mm, Yeah. And we want to just say thanks to everybody in the community because the community raised us, where our families raised us and people can go down wrong paths, but. The, the nature of us was given to us by our families and our communities mm. and that true nature can blossom in recovery and people yeah. in addiction do things that's against their nature and not make excuses but the real person emerges in recovery and what we try to do here is bring people on uh, and show people that you might do things in addiction or you might do things when you're younger when you've all that shit going on but mm. when you if you give somebody half a chance with the right supports they can be great people mm. you know yeah and I I suppose I looked at your own wife Gillian right and I thought her yeah, her interview with she was mm. was 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 really um, it was a hard interview she mm. was really honest right I, I thought it was one of the fabulous best interviews I've ever seen in my life and my wife Michelle um, said it was the best interview she's ever seen. Mm. 
and how Gillian was so honest and talked about it. And right. only a couple of states down from your own, yeah, your own yeah. Churchfield. But the difference was like. I came from Churchville Avenue. I hung around the Churchville Gardens. I hung around where, where Gillian came from. Yeah. But I remember Gillian talking about not having the support, not having the um, the people to look up for, inspiration, and and it was different. I was around the corner, mm. and I had all the things that she didn't have. Like she was so close. If she went up the Vincent's Field or she went up to Castleview or there might have been soccer back then for girls but there was there was really strong uh, intelligent women who were in the community who were leaders in the community but just unfortunately and that's what happens there's family there's, there's people like Gillian and then they went down the road and then when you look at where she is now right and what and how well she speaks and how much she owns it mm. you know and then on the opposite side um, I suppose I had a nephew, Eric, who died at 21. Mm. Um, yeah, I suppose he was like a brother to me. He was, yeah. And what happened was, um, I suppose for people who are watching it, we did everything together like to play a sport. No, he loved the GA, but he loved the social aspect yeah. of the GA. Mm. He loved going to matches and singing the fields of Attenray. And um, I remember up in Torres one time in Hayes' Hotel when he was 12. And we were upstairs and there must have been two or three hundred people up there. And he stood him on the table and he sang a couple of songs and the fucking place erupted. Uh, but he was never into sports. It was just never his thing. Uh, he was into computer games. And then when he was 18, like people think, there's no doubt that poverty and drugs are connected, 100%. Hmm. But it's not everyone who... Um, you don't, ha it's not exclusively for people oh, who are in yeah. poverty. You could be, you could be a multi-millionaire, you could be a doctor, you could be a carpenter. Addiction, that's the one thing, it doesn't discriminate. Oh. When Eric was 18, and I actually remember it, like he'd never been in trouble with the girls. Mm. He'd never been involved in drugs. And he went up to his GP, he said to the GP, I'm 18, I have a problem sleeping. And he always did. He always had problems sleeping. And he got, he got sleeping tablets. And then a couple of weeks later, he went back up and he got stronger sleeping tablets. And then he went up again and got the strongest ones. And then he got more doses. And then what happened? He felt depressed. And he went up and got antidepressants. And then the first line of antidepressants didn't work. And then... It's that spiral, isn't it? It's just yeah. it's worse and worse. And, and the thing about it then, like, um, I was talking to his mother, Sharon, a few weeks ago when we, we were looking at doing this. And they saying about Eric... Like, I loved him. Yeah. I loved him. And it was medication. Like, people think it's heroin, crack cocaine. That's how you get addicted. Yeah. Mm. But it's not that simple. Like, mm. And it was sleeping tablets and antidepressants let him down the road. And it's one of the reasons I'm delighted that Marilu asked me, I, I, I wanted to be involved with housing when I got into the door, but she asked me to do this as well. And the reason for that is, I remember a time my sister used to go up to the doctor and say, only give Eric a daily prescription. Because if he got his week, he'd walk out the door and he'd take the week prescription at, at one time. Mm. And then she went over to the chemist and said he was only get a daily one. And she went away. She like, I know yourself, James, now you talk about your own mother, right? She's an unbelievable woman, yeah. right? And my sister, Sharon, um, she, she was as, as unbelievable as your own man. 
Um, sometimes you can do all you want, but if they're on that path, yeah. it's very difficult. But you know, the hardest thing about it, James, there was a few times where Eric tried to, tried to get into treatment. And I remember there was one time specifically where he came out to say Michael's. And what had happened, he started taking these at the arena, but let's say by the time he was 20, uh, he was depressed, he was self-harming, he had suicidal tendencies. Because they don't work long term, like. No. And every time he went to a doctor or a specialist, they gave him more drugs. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like. Mm. We actually got a copy of his file because we went through it for the inquest. And with the exception of one, his GP three times had recommended him to a specialist because they reckoned he had a personality disorder. And that's what was probably the issue behind the addiction. Mm. But every time he went to the specialist or the consultant, bear one, the increased his dosage. Yeah, mm. that's wrong. So like, yeah. there's a, there a young man, 20 years of age, with huge support from his family, looking for help, and our country... Medicating. Medication. And increased medication. Yeah. And he came over to St. Michael's one time, and... Um, he wanted to go down to Table Lodge and we were going to, his mum was going to have him in GSM, we were going to pay for it and like there would have been no problem we would have found the money somewhere if we went to Credit Union or the bank we would have borrowed it yeah. and uh, they had given him a tablet and said Michael's doing that when he was coming out he was going to Table Lodge and when he arrived down at Table Lodge they said we can't let you in on that medication Mm. So, like, how does no connectivity that when a guy yeah. or a girl is looking, and like, you know yourself, you've been on this road. There are only certain times where you have that moment of clarity mm-hmm. where you want to get into treatment. And if you miss them, and that's one of the big problems yeah. I have at the moment, yeah. you're waiting six months to get into treatment. You're yeah. not, you might be in that frame of mind tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Never mind six months' time. Plus, if you're living a life of chaotic drug use, like, you might even last the six months. But another thing to it then as well is if you're around people and your norm is their chaotic drug use and you're somebody that wants to get help and you're being told by a doctor or, so, or a treatment centre that you can't get in for six months and you still have to go back to this environment. It's very disheartening. You've no chance. You've no Kill choice. your motivation. And the thing, I suppose, for Eric, and what happened at the very end, yeah. like, it's, 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 it's an unbelievable tragedy. Yeah. Um, he was on medication which he was prescribed and they offered him methadone. Yeah. And he went on methadone and he died the first night he took it in his sleep. Fuck. Mm. On the minimum dosage. Do you know I, the thing with methadone? And I was, like, my main drug of choice was benzos. I know if you remember the doctor on Cathedral Road, yeah, yeah. infamous, right? Yeah. So we used the to biggest get, drug dealer on Cork. We, there's a lot of deaths attributed to that surgery. So we used to get a lot of tablets off him, method or um, Rohypnol, Valium, D10s and Xanax and all these things. But when I eventually moved on to heroin, I was still taking all the tablets. So I stayed away from methadone for years, even though like I probably needed it because I used to be very sick if I didn't have mm-hmm. the heroin and the withdrawal, the methadone counteracts that. But the reason I stayed off methadone for a long time is because I was taking so much tablets and methadone and benzos, there's a huge risk of overdose. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends that have overdosed because of methadone and benzo. So it's, I can see kind of what happened if he was taking the tablets the, and the methadone. The thing about it, James, is that what, what people might know is if you're going to go, if you're going to prescribe methadone or if you're going to methadone treatment, which is a disgrace, mm. no one has ever come off methadone from what I can see. 
You know what I mean? What's your methadone, your Anna, for life? Mm. Like, that's not a treatment. Like, it might be a treatment for some people. There has to be an exit plan. There has to be a plan, right? Even if it's 20 years down the road, yeah. you know what I mean? And maybe a person just needs it to stabilise. Yeah. And I don't... It works in that context. Yes. But the thing was, for my nephew, Herrick, when he had been 17, he went into the army and about two weeks before he finished his training, he was out on a run and he collapsed. And he went to the hospital and it was a disaster, no, because he had always wanted to be in the army. And they said, listen, you have a problem with your heart. You can't finish the treatment, you can't be in the army, right? So he had been with the same doctor all his life. So when he was 21 and the doctor in the, the drug center prescribed that he go on methadone, he rang Eric's GP and said, listen, what tablets is Eric on? And he got a list. All he had to do was ask Eric's doctor, is Eric suitable for methadone? And Eric's doctor would have told him no, mm -hmm. because he had a heart problem previously. Following studies that were done in America, following deaths from methadone, the common denominator was um, heart problems. But you see, some people, when they treat people in addiction, they assume everyone is a down and out. They assume everyone has no support, yeah. have no family history. My nephew had all of that. No, he was in addiction. We were his, we were like, as a family, we were doing our best to support him, especially his mom and Jason and um, me dad. And if they had asked that one question, Eric would be alive mm -hmm. today. And I remember being in at the inquest and I said to the doctor, but why? And the doctor was so used to dealing with people. Um, like you see him on the streets, mm. right? And he wasn't one of those people. And one simple question would have saved his life. Because when they did the toxicology report, it found out he hadn't overdosed. It was the minimum use of methadone. And what it was is he had a heart problem that had been diagnosed. And the prescriber of the methadone didn't know about it. Yeah. And I actually asked. And I remember talking to David Lane, who's involved with the, the Dogs Pass Force in Cotton Kerry, right. and I remember saying to David, if we can't bring Eric back. But what we can do, what you might do, and what the, uh, the drug doctors who are prescribing methadone will do is make sure you ask the question, have you any history of heart problems in your family? Or ask your doctor, are you suitable for methadone? Because... If we can only save some other family going through what we went through, because, like, you know, you like, I heard your own stories, right? Mm. About how you nearly died yourself. He didn't need to die. Yeah. He shouldn't have died. And that's the tragedy. And I think back now, I think of Sharon and Jason and Dr., his two younger brothers, Sean and Adam, and, um, you know, and I think my dad, like, we think of him every day. It's a. Yeah. And I know you've lost friends, and, like, we've all had family, and. I suppose for me, listen, I have, I have a good life, I have a good family, I have good friends around me, but we never forget. No. Um, because we've had other family members who have died. And what the thing think? about it is, you could be, that's just not because you're from that meanie, mm. that's just because addiction is addiction. And, it's and, you, and it's every family has it, yeah. every single family. But it's just, we have a lot of stories like that up in where we're from as well. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? There's a lot of families affected by you know, mental health and addiction. Um, so I just want to say, you know, yeah. hi to everybody that's been affected by that and I hope everybody as well. And if they need to seek support, they can contact us and we'll sign up. And go to the website. There's links on the website as well. Yeah.
And I suppose just in that, the people who might be watching it, um, I suppose this podcast is after changing a lot of things for me. If you want to get an education in addiction and recovery and the stories um, for families, because I remember, like I, I would have been, I would have been a smart guy. I wouldn't, I would have been known what was happening on the streets. My family wouldn't, like, we didn't have a podcast like that out there, no, mm-hmm. out back then, you know. And that's why the work you're doing and that uh, for people, because a lot of people are lost. Even though they're smart, intelligent people, it, trying to deal with addiction is really hard. So that's why I would say to anyone who's watching this, or if you have a friend or a family member or someone who's looking for advice, certainly watch the shows, contact you or contact me because there are good people out there who want to help. If people wanted to contact you, where can they reach you? Well, I have an office in Shannon Street. Uh, if you Google me, um, you check my name, my mobile number will come yeah. up. My mobile, like I, I left my mobile number on the internet. A lot of people said to me when you became a DD, take it down. I never turn my phone off. It's on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, because if someone needs help, I'm not sure we can fix everything, but we'll, we'll do our best. And we have an office in Shannon Street with Ken Weldon and D and McNugent is in there. Uh, like we have a lot of people who, who help in any way we can. And what we do is we'll put, we'll, we might be able to do it, but we might know services that can do it or yeah. supports that are there. And that's our, 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 my job then is to get that person to where the help is. Exactly. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, Thomas. Thank Ron you, James. Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to me, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, thanks, Ron. And thanks to everybody that watches podcasts, listens and supports us. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.